The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. couple quick uh, announcements, uh, uh, commercials, as you're returning to Revelation 3. Um, I wanted to give you just a quick reminder. Of course, it's the beginning of Holy Week uh, as we commemorate the week uh, today, Palm Sunday, and then Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And, of course, every day this week is something uh, in the gospel accounts uh, as Jesus makes his way towards the cross. We will have a good Friday gathering here, 630 uh, so I hope you can come for that. It's a somber occasion. There will be no childcare, uh, but it'll be quick, maybe 45 minutes to an hour. And uh, love for you to be part of that and just commemorate the cross of Jesus Christ with us, why he came. And we'll be reading the scripture account of the death and burial of Jesus and singing some songs. And that'll kind of be the end of that gathering. So I hope you can be there for that. Of course, Easter is next Sunday. Can you believe that? Crazy. Uh, we have two gatherings, so we're going we're gonna to do a 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. They'll be identical, uh, and so you can pick which one of those that you want to be part of uh, or stay for both. That's fine. Uh, but uh, we felt like we wanted to make more room, uh, just not, not sure, you know, with this new thing that God's up to here, um, how many people would come out. So uh, 9 and 11 o'clock will be Easter gatherings. Uh, we will have baptisms at both gatherings as well. Uh, so far, I think there's seven people signed up to be baptized. So praise God for that. If you're interested in being baptized, uh, there is still time. So you can let us know on a connect card that you are interested in being baptized or just come find me after the gathering. We'll talk about that. And uh, final little announcement here. Uh, most of you know, we've been doing a little bit of fundraising just so we can go to phase two of our uh, project here to finish out the offices, which will be back there behind you. Uh, that plastic is not kind of our permanent aesthetic. Um, and I just, I wanna give you a, 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 good, a good report here. Um, to, to date, uh, I think we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 59 to 60,000 that has been raised. And as I told you before, we have a, a, an anonymous donor who's willing to match that dollar for dollar. So that gives us up to 120 so far of our $140,000 goal. Amen. So there's still two more weeks. We'll be uh, receiving funds for that phase two giving uh, through April the 16th. And so um, if you want to make up the rest of that gap, feel free. Uh, but if everybody can give a little something, we can get all that in and uh, begin work on the kids' bathroom, uh, these offices, uh, HVAC, stuff that needs to happen, and a few other things, okay? So praise God for that. Uh, we are finishing a series today, learning from both the witness of the ancient church and Jesus's words of warning to those ancient churches. And uh, as I've mentioned to you before, you know, throughout this series, it's early in the book, right? These first few chapters of the book of Revelation, we see letters from Jesus written through the apostle John given to seven specific ancient churches. But those letters were supposed to be bound in a book and sent to all the churches. And so we recognize that all of these letters were for those churches, but they are also for us. And so far we have seen Jesus encourage his church, critique his church, comfort his church, even reprimand his church. And we'll see a little bit more of that even today. So to the church at Ephesus, 
uh, he, he, he commanded them to love, right? They had lost their first love. To the church at Smyrna, he said, be faithful. This was a, a faithful church that was enduring hardship. And he said, be faithful. To the church at Pergamum, he reminded them as they were letting false doctrine sort of in, uh, invade. He said, be discerning. To the church at Thyatira, who had embraced this false teaching, were actually teaching false doctrine. He said, think, think about what you're doing. To the church at Sardis, which had sort of fallen asleep and, and seemed vibrant and alive, but were really dead. He said, wake up. To the church at Philadelphia last week, Pastor Jimmy did a great job helping us see the encouragement to that church who was faithful to keep pressing on. Today, we come to the church at Laodicea, the last church um, in, in these letters. And he's gonna say to this church, be zealous, be zealous. Now, I wonder what, what your thoughts are on that word. We don't use that word a lot in our culture unless we're talking about someone who is overzealous, right? They, they kind of overdo it. But Jesus says that he wants his people to be zealous. I wonder what you think of that. So we're going to look at that in uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Uh, I'm going to read down to verse 22. I will pray for us, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us here. So join me if you have a Bible open as I read uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you in gratitude for uh, the celebration that is Palm Sunday as we remember uh, our King who came triumphantly into Jerusalem as the people cried out, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. We give you thanks and praise that you are that sovereign King who not only came to save us, you saved us by your life, death, and resurrection that we have life in you because of what Jesus has done for us. And we commemorate that all this week, but especially today on Palm Sunday, as you began that process of um, formally sort of walking to the cross. Lord, we, we come, um, many of us um, joyful, but many of us weary 
broken and tired and beat up. Some of us come cold and apathetic and as this text has described, lukewarm. And many of us come with the things of this world on our mind. Lord, how can we gather in a place like this and, and not remember the, the brokenness of this world, of this country? And uh, we lift you, we press to you, our brothers and sisters at, um, in Nashville who have suffered tremendously this week. As this church gathers uh, this morning, with members of their congregation missing, destroyed by this tragic um, act of evil. Lord, we, we press these people to you as um, people have suffered through um, tremendous uh, devastation because of tornadoes and, and storms, uh, even in the last 48 hours. Lord, we press these people to you and we trust that in the midst of unexplainable hardship, tragedy, and pain that you are still good. Help us to cling to that. You are good. You are good. So Lord, be with us today as we look at this passage, what is for many of us very a familiar text, but I pray that you'd give us new eyes and new ears to, to see and to hear and, and give us hearts to believe the truth that is contained within these, these words. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. We ask all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. All right, so Jesus has some hard words here, uh, much like he did a couple weeks ago to the church at uh, Sardis. But I, I, I think there's gold in these hard things that he has to say. And I, and I, I don't know if you noticed, but um, Jesus is not speaking angrily here. He's not speaking in fury or wrath. He's actually speaking in love. We're going to see that towards the end uh, of the passage. But let's look back at verses 14 to 16. I want you to see here the rebuke. So uh, unlike other churches, which, which start with commendation for things that they've done well, this letter starts with none of that. And, and Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, um, the angel of the church at Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, that word means vomit you out. Okay. Now, uh, as I've done before, let me give you a little context. Laodicea was founded in the middle 200s BC. Um, it was in between the city of Colossae and the city of Hierapolis uh, in this uh, region of Asia Minor. And it was along a major, major trade route. Uh, Laodicea is actually mentioned by Paul in the letter to the Colossians uh, because it was a nearby city. It's about six miles away. And so in, in uh, the letter to the Colossians, he says, hey, when you're done with this letter, give it to the Laodiceans. And they, I wrote them a letter too and, and asked for their letter and you guys read their letter, which tells you that there were some probably similar things going on between these two churches and he was trying to cover them uh, both. Now we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans, so we don't know what Paul said to them, but um, they are mentioned. Now, there were three main industries in Laodicea. Banking, particularly the gold exchange. They manufactured a particular glossy black wool. Uh, they, we don't know whether it was because of sheep that literally you know, were black or a, a dyeing techniques, but this wool was very popular and they were able to uh, create garments out of it that were popular around the world. And so they had a huge uh, sort of trade with, with black wool. They were also 
world-renowned for a medical school, specifically uh, and, uh, their focus on ophthalmology on the eyes. And so they grew to one of the wealthiest cities in the entire region, so much so that after an earthquake in 60 AD, devastated the city. And uh, Rome offered some stimulus money to help them rebuild the economy. And the people of Laodicea said, no thanks, we can do this on our own. We have enough resources, we will rebuild this city all by ourselves. And they did. They, they, were, they had this sort of self-made attitude, right? Like we can do it on our own. We don't need help from the government. And so um, that's kind of the, the lay of the land here. Now for everything that Laodicea did have going for them, the one thing they didn't really have going for them was a good water source. We're gonna talk more about that in just a few minutes. So Jesus addresses this church in this city and he says, I am the amen. Now we're familiar with that word, aren't we? We tack it on to all our prayers. Usually we mean agreement, right? Uh, I agree or so be it, Lord, right? We tack on amen. But the, the word amen literally means truly. So like when you read the scriptures and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, or uh, my old school King James friends, verily, verily, I say unto thee. He means amen. He's saying amen, amen, amen. He is the affirmation of God's truth. Jesus not only speaks the truth, but he is the truth. He says here, I'm the faithful and true witness because as the truth, he is the trustworthy one. And the, the, the testimony of Jesus, the witness of Jesus is going to be the most accurate. I see things clearly. I see through all the minutia and I see what's really going on here. And so we need to listen to the words of the trustworthy one, the faithful and the true witness. He says, I'm the beginning of creation. Now, we know that Jesus was not created, right? John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And all things were created by and through and for him. Colossians 1 says the same thing. That this idea is that he was there at the beginning and all things were made through him. He's the firstborn of the dead. That's um, language of status, not of essence, right? He, he's the most important of all that, 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 that is. But like Sardis, there's no commendation. There's no encouragement. There's no comfort here. He simply says to this church, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth. You are so distasteful, so repulsive, so disgusting. I'm gonna just vomit you up. That's pretty strong words, isn't it? Now, this has often been interpreted as an indicator of our spiritual condition, right? So Jesus says, I'd rather you be on fire for me or you not even want anything to do with me, but, but don't be stuck in the middle. And that would be great if that's what the Bible actually meant, but it doesn't. Here's what he means. This is not an indicator so much of their spiritual temperature as much as their usefulness as the people of God. Here's how we know that. Notice in the text, both hot and cold are positive. They're good. I wish you were cold or hot. Now here's where the water issue in, in uh, Laodicea comes into play. As I mentioned, they had a lot of good things going on. One thing they didn't have was a good water supply, okay? To the north in Hierapolis, uh, about 11 miles, I think it was, uh, they had natural hot springs, just like we have in the creatively named town of Hot Springs. <laughs> 
And that water came out of the ground at about 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And it was amazing. And it had, uh, it was mineral rich. And so many people believed it had healing properties and it was very useful, okay? To the south, southeast in Colossae, uh, they were at the basin of a mountain range. And so the, the streams that came down from the mountains were cold and refreshing because it was the, the um, it was like Colorado, you know, like the, the snow melt runoff uh, refreshed the streams, the rivers there. Laodicea only had small creeks surrounding it and they dried up in the summer. So they had to pipe in via aqueducts uh, water from at least six miles away. And where, where they got water from, historians think, um, was one of those hot springs. And by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was tepid and lukewarm. And not only that, but it was so full of minerals, it would actually develop um, uh, calcium deposits and mineral deposits in the pipes. They had to clean them out. But it was, it was so full of minerals that the water stunk and it was like hard to drink. It's like Florida water. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, literally, I'm from Tampa. I can say that. And like literally you'd pour a drink of water in Tampa and you could see stuff in it. Like, I don't think that's supposed to happen. So, so no one could drink that water. And this is what Jesus is saying to the church there. Uh, one commentator put it this way. The sort of Christianity represented by Laodicea is worthless. The church provided neither refreshment for the spiritually weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. It was totally ineffective and thus distasteful to its Lord. So here's a church that by a lot of measures is doing well. They got people coming, right? They got programs, they got ministry on the calendar. They got a lot of things going on for them. And Jesus says, you're disgusting to me. I can't even pallet you in my mouth because you are so tepid and lukewarm and, and you're not useful for anything good for the kingdom of God. So that is the rebuke. If you're a note taker, you can write down over that, the rebuke. But here's the question we need to be asking. What would cause a church, specifically the church at Laodicea, what would cause them to become lukewarm and ineffectual for the sake of of Jesus. I mean, remember, this is maybe 80, 90 ish, 90 to 100. This is, you know, 60 years or so after the, the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus. Like within a couple generations, this church is already at a place where Jesus is saying to them, You are ineffectual. You, you kind of disgust me. What would cause a church to be so lukewarm and so ineffectual? for the sake of Jesus. Let me get a sip of actual cold water because that's refreshing. It would have been a good April Fool's joke if Hannah had put something else in there, but she didn't. All right. <laughs> verse, look at verse 17 with me. You guys hanging with me so far? Okay. Listen to what they say. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So I want you to see the reason, the reason underneath their um, apathy, their coldness, their lukewarmness, so to speak. 
What's the reason for this? Now, unlike other churches that we've looked at so far in Revelation, there is no clear indication that this church suffered from doctrinal compromise. It may have happened. It was certainly a threat in the church at Colossae, if you've read the letter to the Colossians, but we don't know that for sure. What is clear about the church at Laodicea is that in their prideful self-sufficiency, they had become blinded to their own true spiritual condition. Their self-assessment was way, way off. Another way of saying it would be this. Their material success had made them spiritually stagnant. Their, their affluence led them into a place of apathy. And sadly, those two things are far too often connected. Affluence and apathy. So he says to them, you say, you say, we're rich. We need nothing. Even if this didn't come from their lips, this was certainly the posture of their hearts, okay? This wasn't just the mantra of the city, but the mantra of the church itself. We're rich, we've prospered, we need nothing. They were confident, they were comfortable. They had like those seats with the cup holders in them, you know? They, <laughs> they had air conditioning, they had all the things, right? They were content but that led them towards complacency. They said, we're fine. We're doing just fine. And Jesus says that is a precarious place to be. In fact, um, all the way back in Deuteronomy, Jesus warns his people of this. As he's leading his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, in Deuteronomy chapter eight, he says, he says, be careful because when you go into these lands that, you, that, that, that I'm gonna give you and um, you eat of the produce that you didn't plant and, and you come into these houses that you didn't build, you're gonna be tempted to go, look what we did. Look at, uh, aren't we amazing? And he says, you're gonna forget me. In fact, let me just, uh, go back there really quickly. Deuteronomy chapter eight. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. When you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, listen to this, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He goes on and on. in in these couple of chapters to remind them, hey, don't forget, don't forget. Don't forget what I've done for you because you're gonna be tempted to think that you did all this, which is why like the author um, of Proverbs, Proverbs 30, I believe it is, says, hey, two things I ask, help keep me from lying, but also give me neither poverty nor riches. Because if I'm poor, I might curse you. And if I'm rich, I might forget you. Maybe, maybe Jesus said it best, give us this day our daily bread, right? Daily dependence. We're fine, we're fine, we don't need anything. But here's the real situation, Jesus says. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And what's worse, you don't even seem to notice or even care. You are totally unaware and unconcerned about your true spiritual condition. I wonder how many of us are in that boat today. 
that things are fine in our lives. We're comfortable, we're content. There's no problems, there's no crises. There's, there's like, we can go buy all the food we want at the store. We can go out after this. We can, right? We're, everything, every material need we have is fine and satisfied. And spiritually, we are lukewarm, apathetic, indifferent, and don't really seem to care all that much. Now, let me say this. Independence and self-sufficiency are not all bad. Like parents, we all want our kids to be self-sufficient one day, amen? <laughs> we all want our kids to not move back into our house when they're 27, amen? Okay, so, sorry if that's a little too close to home for some of you. Um, there is something good about wanting our children, for example, to launch out into this world and be independent and self-sufficient. But Jesus says we enter the kingdom of God like children. He says, dependence upon me is the way. John 15, abide in me and I will abide in you. What does he say? For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I find that passage um, penetrating, number one, convicting, um, but also ironic because Jesus has to remind us to abide why does Jesus have to remind us to abide? Because it's so easy not to, right? It's so easy to become distracted and preoccupied with everything else in this world and to take our eyes off of Jesus or to treat Jesus like AAA. Tri like car breaks down, lock your keys in your car, get a flat tire, what do you do? Call AAA. How often do you think of AAA when your car's working fine? So we treat Jesus that way. When there's a problem, when there's a crisis, when I really need him, I know he'll show up for me. And as long as I pay my bill, <laughs> I know I can rely on him next time. It's so antithetical to the gospel, isn't it? And, and Jesus is merciful and kind. And oftentimes he will step in and intervene and help us in those times of trouble and hardship. And then what do we do? Thanks, Jesus. And we go right back to our stubborn self-sufficiency. Right on back to our spiritual indifference. Many of us, I think, settle for spiritual mediocrity because everything else in our lives is manageable. I need nothing. But here's the thing. Jesus knows that branches that do not abide in the vine don't just produce less fruit. They die. And so he, as it were, holds up a mirror to the church at Laodicea. Maybe this morning he's holding up a mirror to, uh, to us to show us our own condition. And he's showing us our pitiableness and our poverty and our nakedness. And he's saying, how are you okay with this? How are you fine with this? And so here's his offer. And I love that verse 18, look, look how, he, how he says it. I, he doesn't say command, what does he say? I counsel you, I advise you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, pure. Unlike probably some of the gold that was being traded of the day. 
so that you might be rich. And white garments, remember they were famous for their black wool. He says, no, 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 white garments, which are a reflection of righteousness that they are clothed in by Jesus. So you can clothe your shame. And salve, I failed to mention, there was a a powder called uh, Phrygian powder that was um, developed by that medical school. And it was known to cure many of the ailments common for the eye at that time. He says, no, 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 I have the salve that you need to anoint your eyes so that you can actually see. Here's what he's saying. I have what your soul really needs. Only I have what your soul really needs. Real, true wealth, real, true covering for your shame, real, true uh, healing for your eyes so that you can see how the world really is. I have all that, but you can't afford it. Remember, he says, buy from me, but then he says, you're poor. And they're like, wait, what? How do we do that? You can't afford it. The only way to receive it is, is with empty hands. It's by grace. It's a gift. It's an offer of grace. Um, reminds me of, of two places, Isaiah 55, um, when, when the Lord says to the people, come and buy from me milk and wine come and buy without price. He even says something similar here at the end of uh, Revelation 22, I believe it is. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's grace. Now I wonder for how many of us our self-sufficiency and our pride and our apathy and our being fine with all the sort of things going on in our lives actually has made us thirsty. Like we, we know there's something a little off, but we haven't paid too much attention to it. We know like these things of the world just don't quite seem to satisfy us. And yet we're unsure what to do with that thirst. And Jesus says, come to me. I have water without price. One, uh, one commentator put it like this. I thought it was brilliant. This is really, you see this as the theme of these first chapters of Revelation. And in fact, it's, it's really one of the themes of the entire Bible that God relentlessly offers his grace to people who don't deserve it or seek it or even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. Isn't that true of us? So often, God is relentlessly offering his grace to us and we don't deserve it and we don't seek it and we don't even appreciate it after we've been saved by it. So that is the reason for their apathy. Now, here's my last question. How do we overcome? If if that's any of us in the room, how do we overcome this sense of spiritual apathy, indifference, and a lukewarm heart and an ineffectual witness? How do we we overcome that? And Jesus is gonna tell us here. Look at verse 19. You still with me? Y'all are quiet today. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Another way of uh, understanding that is to sit uh, on a throne next to mine. So it's not like you're in Jesus's lap. That's a little strange. To sit with me on a throne like mine, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I want you to see here the remedy, the remedy, how we overcome spiritual apathy and indifference. Now, as I said earlier, notice that Jesus is not speaking in anger or wrath or fury. I mean, he, he in fact starts out with those whom I love. He's speaking to us in love. The world that we live in is so twisted up that we have taken the love to mean that we have to totally affirm everything about other people. That, that love can't correct, but that's not love at all, is it? In fact, Jesus here is, is alluding to, I, I believe um, Hebrews chapter 12, where he says, I discipline those whom I love. If you are not disciplined by the Lord, you don't actually belong to him. You're Ill, illegitimate children. Jesus actually reproves, corrects, and even rebukes those whom he loves. He disciplines those whom he loves. And any of you who are parents, you understand that principle. You don't just let your kids get away with whatever they want to do, hopefully. But you discipline them because you love them. So Jesus is saying to this church, I love you too much to let you keep living this way. So here's the solution. Be zealous and repent. Now this is not a two-step process. First be zealous, okay, got that down. Now repent, okay, no. Repentance is an act of Zeal. Repentance is an act of devotion and earnestness. And notice he doesn't say, if you feel like it. So many of us, when it comes to zeal, we think zeal is just emotion. Like you are either zealous or you're not, and it's this spectrum of emotion. But zeal has to do with earnestness, has to do with devotion, whether you feel it or not. So Jesus is sort of shaking the lukewarm and he's saying, hey, be devoted to me. And in your devotion, repent. Come back to me. We've talked about repentance over and over again in this series, that it is a change of mind, but it's also a change of direction. It's, um, you know, think Luke 15, right? The, the wandering son returning and coming home to his father, even if we don't feel it. I had a goal this year that I was going to get in better shape than I am. And I had it all written out and I had a plan. And you know what? I didn't feel like it, so I didn't do it. And that's how so many of us are with our spiritual walk. And Jesus, in as in his kind a way as he can, says, I don't care how you feel. I mean, he does. But like, just sometimes doing the actions, right? Opening up your Bible, praying, making yourself show up at church when you really want to stay in that warm spot in the bed. Like those acts of devotion bring the feeling rather than you waiting until you feel it to do it, do it and the feelings will follow. That's what he's saying. Be zealous and repent. And then he says this verse that many of us know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, many people use this for evangelistic purposes. And they say, Jesus is at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And if you will let him in, he will save you. You can invite Jesus into your heart. And I wish the Bible was actually teaching that. That's not what this is about, okay? This is, a, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to people who already belong to him. And what is he saying? He's saying, I refuse to be ornamental in your lives. And so the fact that you consider me ornamental and consider me 
non-essential, well, guess what? I've made myself non-essential. This church was so busy and so distracted and so ambivalent, they were caring about with all their regular ministry and they didn't even notice that Jesus had left them. He's knocking on the door of the church. And they had no idea that Jesus had gone, which means they had never operated out of his power to begin with. So Jesus is outside the church knocking, but not like a nervous Girl Scout wanting to sell you cookies. Okay, Jesus is knocking at the door. At the door, he's knocking as the only begotten son of God, the son of man, the son of righteousness, the king of glory, the Lord of lords, the lion of Judah, the bright and morning star, the author of life, the bread of heaven, the cornerstone, the good shepherd, the fountain of living waters, the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the great high priest, the one mediator between God and man, the sinner's savior, the risen one, the resurrection and the life, the alpha and the omega, the word, the way, the truth, the life, the vine, the Messiah, the Christ, the amen, the faithful and true witness, Emmanuel, the great I am. That's who's knocking. And we had better open that door. God did not call us to settle for slightly Christianized mediocrity. And who enjoys that anyway? We want to be a people of vibrancy, of life, of the fullness of joy in this ever-darkening world. So where are the Christians who are willing to shake off all of the things that hinder a vital relationship with him? Where are the Christians who are willing to slow down their busy, mostly trivial lives enough to treat the Lord as if he's actually real and present with us? Listen to his grace, gracious invitation here. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne. He says, if you let me in, we're gonna eat together. Now, I don't know how social you guys are, but um, sharing a meal with someone can be a fairly intimate thing, can't it? You're in their home or they're in your home. You're sharing stories, you're getting to know each other, you're watching people eat, which is an intimate thing all by itself. Um, it's about real relationship, isn't it? This is what Jesus is offering. I have real relationship that I wanna offer you, not just religious motions. That's not what this thing is about. This is about relationship. If you have union with Christ, you, you can also have communion with Christ. Those are two different things. So um, maybe to give you an analogy, um, uh, union with Christ is not changing ever, right? Just like my wedding ring reminds me that I'm married to that woman and that doesn't change, right? I'm not, I don't wake up one day and I'm not married, okay? That's not how this thing works. But the communion side ebbs and flows. The relationship ebbs and flows. So um, when she takes off to Italy without me, we don't talk for a little while. I'm just kidding. And I mean, she did, but <laughs> she had good reason, folks. Uh, so she had to hang out with teenagers. That's not great either. So uh, you, there, there are seasons, right? In all of our marriages where like you are more roommates than you are spouses or things become about the kids or about getting stuff done or about bill pay and all this stuff. And, and you realize, oh, we haven't really talked, right? Like we're not, 
So, so you focus on communion, you do a date night, or you have a conversation, or a fight, which leads to a conversation, and, and, then, and then communion is restored, right? Jesus is saying, if you have union with me, I want communion with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to build that relationship up. But, but also, he says this, to those who conquer, who stay dependent, who, who war against apathy and self-sufficiency, he says, not only do I want to share a meal with you, I'm going to share my kingdom with you. In some mysterious way, the scripture tells us that we will reign with Christ in eternity. I don't know what that means, but I'm here for it. That Jesus has purchased the kingdom. He's brought the kingdom. And not only does he want to share a meal with us, he wants to share his kingdom with us. I mean, don't, don't you see? Jesus is the only truly self-sufficient one because he's the all-sufficient one. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he left the riches and the glories of heaven and he came in dependence on his father, didn't he? Obedience to his father. And he lived a perfect sinless life that none of us could live, always honoring, always staying obedient and dependent on his father for us because we can't. And when he went to the cross, Jesus took on himself, our wretchedness. He took on himself our pitiable state. He took our poverty. He took our nakedness. He was literally stripped naked and nailed to the cross. And he did it so that we could be covered with his righteousness, given that signet ring that says we belong to the Father. The, 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 um, the inheritance of the kingdom of God could be ours. He, he died in our place to give us the kingdom. As I was reading this week, um, it struck me, I don't know that there's a connection to this, but I found it interesting that um, one of the passages about Palm Sunday is Mark chapter 11. And it takes place after, shocker, Mark 10. And, um, and in Mark 10, Mark 9 and 10, here's a few things that happened. Um, uh, they asked Jesus, if um, they can sit with him on his throne to the right and to the left, the, the sons of thunder, remember that? A rich man comes to him and wants to know how to get into the kingdom. And he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to get into the kingdom because you're rich, because you don't see your need. Um, some kids are trying to get to Jesus and the disciples are pushing him away. And he says, no, 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 no. You enter the kingdom like a child in dependence. So all those things are happening and then Palm Sunday comes. And Jesus is on that colt and he's walking on the colt into Jerusalem and they lay down their coats and they lay down palm branches and they cry out, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They cry out, save us, save us, save us. And, and maybe today our cry is that God would save us, save us from our apathy, save us from our lukewarm condition, save us from our indifference. Some of you might need to actually be saved for the first time and step into the kingdom, be saved from sin, but so many of us just need to be saved from our dullness. So rather than questions this morning, here's what I wanna do. I just wanna take a couple minutes of quiet and I want you to just, wherever you are in your seats, just take an inventory of your heart this morning. Are there places that are just 
They're not hot or cold. They're not really useful. They're just sort of there. They're tepid. They're indifferent. They're lukewarm. And just lift toast to the Lord and say, save me. You are the king. Hosanna, save me from my cold. I keep using the word cold, lukewarm. Keep, save me from my indifference. Save me from my apathetic state. Give me vibrancy. Give me, make me either hot or cold. Make me useful for your purposes, for your kingdom. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna move into our time of uh, response. And um, here's a couple things that will happen. Uh, we're gonna take communion together. And so um, there will be four uh, servers, uh, four pairs of servers uh, at these four aisles. Um, if you're new around here, never done this, we're gonna start at the back row. Uh, and so I know you thought you were the back row Baptist, but you get to go first. So you will come uh, down these aisles, okay? Uh, they will have bread and they will have wine or juice, whatever your conscience allows. And they will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ spilled for you. And so you can take, um, as the back row makes their way down, the next row will go and we'll do that. If you're not a Christian, this isn't for you. But if you are a Christian, this is for you. This is a commemoration. This is a, a looking back on what Jesus has done, but this is also a looking forward to that glorious meal that we will share with him in eternity. This is a foretaste of the, the Bible calls it the marriage supper of the lamb, this, this meal that Jesus wants to share with his disciples. And so we can come and partake of this knowing that Jesus is always good for his promises. And so every time we partake in communion, we're reminding ourselves of the promise that there's a day coming when we will feast with him in the house of Zion, amen? So if you're, if you're not a Christian, you can stay seated, but if you are, come down these middle uh, aisles. When you partake of communion, you can go back up the side walls there. Uh, there are giving boxes if you are regular and wanna give. If you're new or if you have a prayer request, just put your connect card in those black boxes as well. Uh, and then we're gonna start singing again. And our last song, I'm gonna have you all sit down. The very last song, Matt will give you instructions and our kids are gonna be processing in with their palm branches. We're gonna sing with the kids in the room as well. So uh, very special morning, but let me pray and then we'll move into our time of response.